Boy, are we blessed or what? I'll tell you what. Well, before we get started into uh, God's Word tonight, I um, do want to thank everybody for coming out to uh, Sunday Walk. It was a great, great turnout. Uh, I enjoyed it. I didn't get to go in uh, November for my first one. We ended up having a deacon ordination, so tonight was my first one being able to go out and be a part of it, and uh, I love going out on visitation and just enjoy uh, being able to go out and meet people and talk with them, meet them where they're at, and uh, so truly thankful for those of you that came out to join us for Sunday Walk, and uh, also again, want to throw out an uh, emphasis on how important it is to be in Sunday school. If you're not in Sunday school, oh man, we've got plenty of classes. We'd love to get you involved in one of those classes. We have uh, just the best teachers. My wife and I have actually been going through uh, all of the youth classes this last three weeks. We've been to the uh, 11th and 12th grade, and then the 9th and 10th grade, and today the 7th and 8th grade. And so uh, we've been enjoying going through all the different Sunday school classes. We still have a few classes to get to, uh, but we're truly enjoying that. Also, uh, for many of you know, I've been trying to uh, call uh, everybody in the church. So if I haven't got to you, uh, that's because it's okay. I haven't gotten to 90% of you yet, all right? So I am working on it. I am calling. But I will also offer this. A lot of you have disconnected numbers. And um, so if you want me to call, I'm just saying, you might want to get your new number in. Uh, that way I can get in contact with you, can be able to call with you. And really the reason why I'm calling is to pray with you. Uh, that's as simple as that. I'm just calling you up. I want to get to know you a little bit better. Uh, know how I can be praying for you, and, uh, and then pray with you. So uh, don't try to get off the phone too quick, because I'm going to pray with you. Um, so if you do not have the right number in our phone directory, uh, and would like your pastor to call you and pray with you, with probably in the next three years, I believe, um, get that number in so that I can call you and uh, be praying for you at this time. Well, if you got your Bibles open up to Nehemiah chapter 9, uh, we're continuing our study through the book of Nehemiah. Uh, we're going to be looking at the first three verses uh, in the book of Nehemiah, uh, simply entitled this message, Revival. Now, how many of you have ever been to Revival? Or better yet, let me ask this question. How many of you have been to what they call Revival? Anybody been to what they call Revival? Yes. I, you know, I'm sure Hillcrest has had Revivals before, am I right? Right? Uh, or you maybe, maybe even if another church down the road had Revival, you may have gone to it but let me ask you, uh, most revivals last from Sunday to Wednesday, right? Have any of your revivals ever gone beyond that? A few of them have. Have they, have they gone longer than a week? Have they gone longer than two weeks? All right, good. That's good. All right, but can I tell you what happens when revival takes place? It goes on for a year or longer. So we don't really know, when we call it revival, we don't really know it's revival until the results come in. Now, we saw something happen in Burlington, North Carolina, where this guy came in and he did what was called a tent revival. And they were seeing hundreds of get, people getting saved each week. It was incredible. Um, and I'm thinking, man, this is crazy because it would go on, you know, it was going on for a couple of weeks and after it went on for like a month, they expanded it for another month and expanded it for another month because they were seeing thousands of people saved in that area. And people were traveling three and four hours to come down there just to get a glimpse of what God was doing. Now, that was the start of revival. Unfortunately, when they packed up the tent, guess what happened? It ended. It ended. 
You see, to be honest with you, we have not seen a great revival in our lifetime. We haven't. Some of the great revivals that have occurred, in fact, the very first one that we can really think about is known as the First Great Awakening. Many of you have probably heard of it. Jonathan Edwards was a great proponent during this time who preached his message, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, where he literally had people believing that they were hanging over hell by a string, just grasping. They felt as if the floor, the bottom of the floor of the church opened up and hell's flames were seeking up to engulf them. It was during this time that God began to bring about a great revival. But in the early 1700s is when this took place. In fact, the problem was there was a European philosophical movement known as the Enlightenment or the Age of Reason. Now, you probably all studied that. Most people study that in history class. They don't study about what took place after that. But it was making its way across the Atlantic Ocean to the American colonies. Enlightenment thinkers emphasized a scientific and logical view of the world while downplaying religion. In many ways, religion was becoming more formal and less personal during this time, which led to low church attendance. Christians were feeling complacent with their methods of worship. Some were disillusioned with how wealth and rationalism were dominating culture. Many began to crave a return to religious piety. But it wasn't until they recognized it wasn't about religious movement. It was about having a relationship with God that revival took place. It was when they stopped wanting what they wanted and they began to want what God wanted and they began to seek his face diligently and they began to give up the things in their own life to seek great revival that it took place. The second great awakening happened at the end of the 1700s and many people in the U.S. no longer regularly attended church services. This occurred for several reasons. Some believe that God did not play an important role in everyday life. God was also supposedly unconcerned with a person's church attendance. Rather, God would judge the person on how he or she had lived his or her life on earth. Other people become too consumed with earning a living to have time to worship God. As a result of declining religious convictions, many religious faiths sponsor religious revivals. These revivals emphasized human beings' dependence upon God. Most of the religious revivals occurred as camp meetings. Adherents and interested parties would spend several days hearing the word of God from various religious leaders such as Charles Finney and other great preachers in that time. But you think about it. When I read this description of what was taking place in the Second Great Awakening, what took place, what caused it to happen, it's much of what's happening today. Much of what's taking place today. People don't think church attendance is important. They don't have time to worship God. Religious convictions and their faiths begin to decline. And boy, if we're ever seeing that in America, we're seeing it right now, aren't we? Man, which just drives me to really desire more and more to see revival happen. The last great revival happened in the early 1900s, known as the Welsh Revival. And I've talked about this on Wednesday evenings. But it happened because one young man, his name was Evan Roberts, was sick and tired of playing the game of church. He was tired of it. He said, nothing's happening. We come in, we do church, we go home. So Evan Roberts... Felt like God had given him a special message. He went to the pastor and he said, he told his pastor, he said, I believe that God has given me a message to share with the church. And the pastor said, well, okay, well, I'll give you the end of the service to share your message with the church. Once, once we close out service, I'll let you speak. 
So they closed out service and the preacher just simply said, hey, uh, Brother Evan Roberts has something that he would like to share with you if you guys would like to stay behind after church. And uh, he, he would love to share his message that God has given to him. And only about 20, 25 people stayed behind in the church. Now, the church was a lot fuller that night than that, but 20, 25 people decided to stay behind to listen to what Evan Roberts had to say. And he began to pour into them the importance of needing spiritual revival. And he said that we've got to get on our faces before God. And he started it with prayer. And they prayed practically all night, asking God to bring about revival. And the greatest thing that came out of his prayer was, Lord, bend me. Bend me. In other words, whatever you have to do with me, bend me in such a way that I'm completely and utterly used by you. And God brought about revival. In fact, his major prayer during that time was, God, save 100,000 souls. And in that time, 1904, 1905, there were 100,000 Welsh saved. That's amazing. Well, when we look at this, I've often looked and I thought, man, what, what kind of scriptures would share with us revival? There's actually two great passages of scripture in the Old Testament that teach us about revival and when it took place. One is found in the book of Nehemiah that we're going to study tonight, and one is in the book of Jonah when it happened with the Ninevites. Those were the two great revivals in biblical times. So tonight we're going to look at the one that took place during the time of Nehemiah. We're going to look at three steps to revival. Let's read this together, Nehemiah 9, beginning in verse 1 through verse 3. Now, in the 20th and 4th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and with sackcloth and earth upon them. And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read in the book of the law of the Lord their God one fourth part of the day. And another fourth part, they confessed and worshiped the Lord their God. You got to remember, we just talked about chapter 8 where they were meeting and they were reading the word of God and they were spending a lot of time, in fact, over a week, spending hours upon hours just reading from the law of God, digging in deep to God's word. When we come to this point, we find that there's several things that begin to take place because they've become students of the word. And a lot of people often wonder, you know, well, why why do you emphasize the importance of us individually reading the word of God? Because it's important for you to read the word of God on your own. If you just simply depend on every time you come into the church to be fed the word of God, you're getting three meals a week and that's it. And we know that we can't live off of three meals a week. So why would we do three meals in God's Word when we need to be reading it every day? We need to become students of the Word, that it just penetrates our hearts, speaks to us, moves us, talks to us, so that we grow and get closer to the Lord. So because of those things began to form in their hearts, as they began to study and understand God's Word, these things came about. And the first step to revival was humility. He says, on the 20 and 4th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and with sackcloth, and earth upon them. On the 24th day of the month, in other words, what's taking place here is just after the Feast of Tabernacles, which they just celebrated in chapter 8. They come to this point, and this kind of resembles the Day of Atonement, where every man begins to search out his own heart. And it begins by fasting. Now, let's just be honest. Fasting, oftentimes people say, well, that's, that's an Old Testament thought. It's an Old Testament desire, but that's not true. You know, when Jesus, is dis- Jesus was confronted, he, said, he was asked, he says, why do your disciples not fast, but disciples of John the Baptist and our disciples, they fast, but your disciples don't fast. And he said, well, when the bridegroom is gone, they will 
fast, which meant that they would fast, but they just weren't going to fast as long as Jesus was there. So we do fast. Now, what is fasting? Fasting is the foregoing of food for particular reasons. Have you ever thought about the way, you know, let's be honest. Most of us, when we get hungry, we just immediately go to the cupboard, right? I can open up the cupboard and I'm going to find some form of snack, something to drink. But fasting says, you know what? God, I know I need this substance to give me life. I know I need this to keep me going. But I need you more than I need food. I need you and I need to hear from you. And so when they would fast, they would fast for several reasons. Many of you may have not realized this. Maybe you've not gotten an answer to prayer because you've not incorporated fasting with your praying. Oftentimes God will answer when we become serious. And fasting shows our seriousness, but it also shows that we're humble before God. Now, oftentimes fasting would also be equated with when people were going through difficult times. Have you ever thought about that whenever there's a funeral? What is the first thing that we try to get the family to do after a funeral? Eat, right? Every good Baptist, we're, we're bringing them chicken after they lose a loved one, right? Or barbecue. We're going to bring them chicken or barbecue. That's like the two main meals that we're going to bring to you. And so you bring it in, and you're like, you need to keep up your strength. You need to eat. But how many of you know that that's what they would do? They would fast during times of grieving. Why? Because they weren't thinking about food. They were thinking about the loved one they just lost. It put their focus on that loved one. Well, when we're not fasting for grieving, we're, focusing to put our fo- or we're fasting to put our focus on God, to hear from God, to find direction from God. But also it would be to humble ourselves before God, saying, God, we need you more than bread itself. You see, to be honest with you, there's only one thing we can't do without very long, and that's oxygen. You can go without water for a couple of days. You can go without food, guess what, for 41 days. Do you know that? Your body can make it. All right? But you cannot go without God one moment, just like oxygen. And when you fast, what you're saying is, God, I will allow myself to go through the hunger pains. I will allow myself to go through the difficulties of going without food so that I might hear from you, so that I might see you. They humbled themselves by fasting. Second way they humbled themselves is it says, and with sackcloth. Now, this is interesting because a lot of times people say, well, what in the world is sackcloth? It was kind of like a camel and goat's hair mixture. Uh, best way I can tell you is a burlap potato sack. You guys ever remember doing a potato sack race? Do you remember when you would have on shorts and you'd put that burlap sack on and you'd jump and it would rub against your skin and boy, it irritated it, didn't it? They would literally wear this. They would take off their garments and they would put on this sackcloth and it was a sign to God that they were willing to forego all the leisure of this world to put their focus on God. They were humbling themselves they wanted to exalt God and so they would strip there put on this sackcloth and here's the thing what's interesting when you read in the book of Jonah even the king stripped his robe and put on sackcloth and wore it underneath his clothing as a sign of humbling himself before God now here's the thing I'm going to tell you that's not something that would be very comfortable now if I all of a sudden started seeing people coming in and potato sacks into church I would know something was up wouldn't you I mean, I, I've seen some people wearing some crazy things before, but never something like that. But man, when you're serious about getting things right with God, you don't care how it feels. You don't care what you're foregoing. You just want to meet with God. And that's what was going on at this time. So not only did they fast and put on sackcloth, but here's the thing about sackcloth. It was used for several different instances. They would use it when they mourn for someone's death. 
They would also use it when they mourned for repentance. In the book of Esther, it was used when they mourned for bad news. And in Daniel, it was used when they were in need of wisdom. So there were always, just like, just like fasting, there were different reasons for fasting. There was different reasons for putting on sackcloth. But the third thing, this is kind of a unique one. It says, and they put what? Earth upon them. In other words, the literal translation is they put dust on their heads. They literally threw dust on their heads. You ever heard the statement, and you usually don't hear it until you get to a funeral, but from dust to dust. In other words, by throwing dust on their heads, it was a reminder to them where they came from. We are nothing more than dirt. I mean, could you imagine that that's the outlook you have towards God? God has created you. God has given you your very breath. And so you humble yourself saying, God, I understand. I am nothing but dirt. When they threw the dust on their heads. Why would they do it? They did it for several reasons. They did it again. Just in the book of Job, he did it when he mourned. He threw dust on his head. They did it for humility in Joshua chapter 7 when Achan sinned. They did it as a sign of repentance. Job did it when he repented before God because he misspoke. So these were separate signs. These were all different signs they did to humble themselves before God. In other words, humility is understanding who God is and in truth who we are. And when we recognize who God is and who we are, boy, we start to get things right. But that was a part of revival was humility. The second part of the revival was repentance. Look at verse 2. And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers. The idea of separation was to have a sacred assembly. In other words, they separated themselves from those who weren't like-minded. And it, I mean, if you've ever had some bad friends, anybody ever had some questionable friends? I see some of the kids raising their hand, but very few adults are like, <laughs> I mean, you think about it. We've all, at some time, I guarantee you, every one of you in here has had a friend that was a little questionable. Your mom and daddy questioned you about them, right? Are you sure you want to hang out with so-and-so? We know what they do. You don't want to hang out with so-and-so because we know how they can bring you down. Obviously, they didn't know that you were the ones bringing them down, right? Is that what it was? So... You think about it, they separated themselves. In other words, they recognized, man, if I, if I hang out with these people who are not worshiping God, I'll end up becoming like them and they might draw me away from God. So they separate themselves. Now understand, this is not the monastic separation. And you know, some of the monks took this real serious back in the, in the you know, 12 and 1300s when they began to separate from the people. They would go off and live a monastic life. They would get away from everybody. They wanted nothing to do with them because they wanted to be holy. Well, the problem was instead of being holy, they just became pious and prideful. And they lost sight of why they were there. You see, we separate in order to get away from the things of the world. The, the Bible tells us that we're in the world, but we're not to be of the world. We're going to have to live around situations that we don't like, but we can't be different. Amen. How many of you know I have a, a favorite fish? Anybody have a favorite fish? I'm not talking about that you eat. All right. All right. My favorite fish is a salmon. I would love for you to be like a salmon. All right? You say, well, what does that have to do with anything? Well, all the other fish swim with a current. The salmon does what? He swims against the current. In fact, the salmon is so cool, he can swim up waterfalls. He can. He'll fight against the current. He'll fight and swim uphill. 
And he'll make it. He'll keep going. Now, that's usually where the bears are waiting to, to grab him and eat him. But, you know, he still makes it up. He still get there. But the idea is that we need to be like Sam and we need to swim against the current of our culture. We've got to be willing to be different, to be separate, to not look like everybody else. Now, please understand, that's not about clothing, is it? That's about attitude and a lifestyle change that says, I'm going to live like Christ in a world of unchristlike people. To be separated means we don't draw away from those people. It means we draw away from the things that they do. It means that we act different. That's what they did. They separated themselves. They weren't going to keep doing the things they had always been doing. And I'm going to tell you, that's, that's hard. It's hard to stop doing what you've always been doing. It is hard to break habits, isn't it? It's very hard. I, I still, to this day, really have a hard time driving past a Krispy Kreme. Uh, I might just make a swing around the block and then pull in and feel better about myself. At least I passed it once, right? But the thing is, it's hard to change sometimes. It's hard to change who we've always been. It's hard to just be a little bit different. But the world is looking at us wondering, is there really a change in that person? When difficult times happen, when you go through hardships, are you going to break or are you going to trust God? Are you going to press on and believe that God's going to get you through? Or are you going to complain with the old me, old my's? You see, the world is watching us. They want to see how we react. They want to see if our integrity holds up. They want to see if we're truly different. The Israelites separated themselves from all strangers. In other words, the separation was so that they would look different, so that they would be the living sacrifices that people could see exactly what God had done in their lives. But not only did they repent in the sense of separation, they also repented in a sense of confession. It says, and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And have you ever thought about what that would cost? Why are we so afraid to confess our sins to other people? We say, well, you know, I don't mind repenting to God, but... I don't want anybody else to find out who I am, right? We're afraid because if, if I tell somebody my sin and they know who I am and how I fail and where I fall short, how do I know that they'll keep my trust and my confidence, right? Because let's just be honest, bad news spreads better than good news, and boy, if I got some bad news on you, I got a leg up on you, is the way we think. But that's wrong. It's completely wrong. The truth is, if somebody comes to you confessing a sin in their life, you better not look at them like they're so dirty and vile, because there's probably something deep down inside of you that if you confessed it, they might think the same thing about you. You see, we got to stop thinking we're clean. We got to stop thinking we're good. We got to stop thinking we're perfect because we're far from it. Confession comes from the idea of recognizing I need help. When I fall into sin, I need help. I need somebody that's going to be there for me, that's going to encourage me, that's going to hold me accountable so I don't do it again. Man, you should have seen it. This, this happened not too long ago in Brownwood, Texas. At one of the Christian schools down there in Brownwood. Liberty tried to copy it. Unfortunately, it was when I was in college. They wanted to copy what was going on in Brownwood. And what they did was, all of a sudden, after one of the services, 
Somebody just got up. One of the kids, one of the college students got up, came up front, walked up to the microphone and said, I need you guys to pray for me. I have an addiction to pornography. I know it's a sin. I can't break it. I can't defeat it. I go in my room. I get on my computer. It's just easy. He says, and I need you guys to pray for me. He said, will you do that? Several students got up, went up there and prayed with the young man. After they prayed with the young man, another student got up, went to the podium. I need y'all to pray for me. I've been lying. Another one, I got up. I need you to pray for me. I've been gossiping. By the time the service ended, four or five hours later, just about every student in the auditorium had gotten up and confessed their sin to their entire student body. You know, the statement wasn't made after that step. The statement wasn't made after that took place. Wow, that's a whole bunch of heathens at that Christian school. Man, that school was really in a lot of trouble. No, the statement was made was every college wanted to emulate what was going on there. Because there were students confessing cheating on tests. There were students confessing that they didn't write their papers. There were students out there confessing all of these things, wanting to get things off of their chest, wanting to make things right, wanting to get things right with God. And boy, they had to start us something great there. Unfortunately, it didn't last. Would have been nice if it did. But I remember Liberty wanted to emulate what was going on there. And so one night after, after we had a, our, our service that night, the guy goes, we've set a couple of microphones up here if anybody would like to come up and confess their sins. <laughs> just like what I just said, crickets. You know, just, There was not a whole lot of movement. Now a few did finally get up there and do it because they just wanted what had happened. But if it wasn't prompted by the Holy Spirit, it wasn't going to last. It wasn't going to move. But they got up there and they confessed to one another. And let's just be honest. And if we confessed our sins, and here's the truth of the matter. Every one of you, you ready for this? Every one of you in here suffers with a sin that you're having a hard time overcoming. I promise. Now, for some of you sitting there going, not me. Well, your sin's pride, so I just helped you. Okay? It's pride. But that's the truth. Every one of us has a sin that we battle with. Satan knows just how to manipulate us. He knows just what to use in our lives. And boy, let me tell you something. Pride is what will keep you from being willing to confess those things. Pride will keep you from coming to the altar and getting right with God. Pride will be the thing that will destroy our lives if we're not willing to be open about the things that are going on in our lives. Man, it feels so good when you talk to somebody about the things that are going on. These people stood up in the middle. You ready for this? In the middle of the service, and they confessed their sins. Now, could, could you imagine some of the sins they confessed that day? Could you imagine the facial expressions on the Pharisees out in the group that day? But could you imagine those that got their hearts and lives right with God and were more concerned about God than any other person in that community? You see, that's when revival happens, when we're more concerned about what God thinks than man thinks. They confess their sins and listen, and the iniquities of their fathers. Here's the thing, they didn't blame. And this is, this is the one thing that drives me nuts. Man, we will blame everybody for our mistakes. 
except ourselves. There are so many times I've heard kids that make stupid decisions and they'll make the statement, well, if my daddy hadn't a... Can I just tell you, let's just go ahead and get this right out there. If you sinned, it's your fault, not your mama or your daddy's fault. It has nothing to do with how you were raised. You ready for this? We all had some crummy times growing up. And some of you may have had more difficult times than others, but let it go. Because you'll never move beyond and you'll never be who God wants you to be as long as you hold on to your past closed-fisted as though it's everything that's caused your problems. Let it go and let God change your future. They confess the iniquities of the fathers, not sitting back saying, well, it's my daddy's fault that we're in the situation we're in. No, they confess that, guess what? The whole community was messed up. Can I tell you something? The whole church is messed up, including me. We can be messed up people. But man, when we're willing to confess and get things out before God and repent and fall on our faces before God, wow, what a cleansing can take place in the church. Revival requires humility. Revival requires repentance. And finally, revival requires worship verse 3 says and they stood up in their place and read in the book of the law of the lord their god one fourth part of the day three to four hours oh let's 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 be honest for a moment if church went past lunchtime how many of y'all would get up and just go ahead and go i'll be honest you say, well, you've never done that before. Well, let's try it out next Sunday. What do you think? Let's check it out and see what happens. I used to have this one couple in our first church, an older couple, and they sat in the back row. But every Sunday, our service started at 11. And sometimes the music was done at 11.30. Sometimes the music was done at 11.40. Me, I never cared what time the music was done. I was going to preach as long as I had, you know. I wasn't that person that, we had a preacher that was there before me that when it hit 12, he'd go, well, it's 12 o'clock time for me to wrap it up. And he could be in his introduction. I'm like, well, we didn't get a whole much scripture. We got your introduction. And he'd wrap it up. I would be one, I'd just keep going. Sometimes we get out at 1230, you know. The Methodists beat us to the food lines. That's okay. We were fine with it. We just, we'd take second fiddle. But I remember at 12 o'clock, every Sunday, every Sunday, every single Sunday, his watch alarm would go off. <laughs> I'm like, you couldn't just leave? You got to let everybody know you're leaving? I mean, it would beep, beep, beep. And, and he was an older gentleman, so he'd be like, And they'd get up and they'd walk right out. And it could be during invitation. It wouldn't matter. He was just 12 o'clock. Boom. God, you're done. I had a preacher one time that said, my message is like a bologna sandwich. You can cut it off on both ends. It's still the same. That was not me. I didn't say that. Okay. That was another preacher. But I used to think to myself, man, I, do we not have a reverence for the Word of God to where we will stay as long as it's preached. 
Do we not have a reverence for the word of God that as long as God's word is being spoken, as long as God's word is being read, that we have such a reverence for it that we just, we want more? I was at a revival meeting that we had one time. One of my professors came and he preached it. And, you know, we got done with the music about 1130 and he was preaching. And I remember, you know, after he got done preaching, the invitation was given and we were getting ready to take him to lunch. I remember finally looking at my watch. I was like, 130. He preached two hours. I remember walking out of there going, man, that felt like 30 minutes. That was awesome. I mean, I felt like I'd been there 30 minutes. Now, he did that the rest of the nights, too. He preached two hours, and I was looking at my watch going, man, that felt like two hours. <laughs> but, but God was moving. He was moving in a mighty way. And when his word is preached, it will not come back void. And we wanted to see what the Lord was going to do. They read for it for three to four hours. Now, here's the thing. Understand, they simply read the book. There wasn't an explanation to the book. They read the book. Could you imagine if I stood up here and my sermon one Sunday was just to read one book out of the Bible and just read from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to the end. Some of y'all are like, please don't read Isaiah. That's 66 chapters. We'd be here forever. But he just read from the Word of God, and the Word of God was penetrating and moving and challenging and changed their lives. But then look at this. It says, and another fourth part, they confessed and worshiped the Lord their God. Man, how, how many of y'all would like worship to go on for like three or four hours? There are times where I'm like, I want to look at Travis and go, keep it going. There ain't no need to stop. Keep going. I'm going to tell you, it was so cool. One time I went to my parents' church, and, and that's exactly what happened. The pastor actually played the bass guitar. So he got to decide if they wanted to keep going or not. And he's just sitting up there and he's just strumming away. And if he liked the song, he just looked over at the song director and went, and just kept strumming away. And they, they followed. I had never seen a band follow the bass player, but they did. And whatever he said went. And, uh, but his wife was also on the piano, so she got the, she got the clues, you know, when she needed to keep going. But it was just funny because there was a time, I remember we were singing this one song and God was moving in such an amazing way. And he goes, we're going to sing that again. Let's go. God was moving. God was working. I'm going to tell you this morning we were singing one of those songs, weren't we? Man, that song's stronger. That was awesome. I love the way, you know, Travis improvises. Let's let's do that one again. Let's let's sing part of that again. Why? Because, man, that's what it's all about. When the Spirit is moving, you just don't want to stop. You want God to keep working. You want God to keep moving. And, man, I'm going to tell you, worship is awesome. It is exciting to be in God's house and see God's people praising the Lord. And man, when we begin to worship, I'm here to tell you, when we get into authentic, true, and genuine worship, the people in the world want to know what we've got that makes us like that. But now if we come in here and we just sing what's on the board, what's on the walls, and it's not authentic and it's not genuine and it's not real, they don't give a care in the world about what we're singing about. But when it's sung from the heart and it is genuine and true, boy, they want to know everything we want to know. But that comes from genuine worship. These people, man, they worshiped God three to four hours with the confession as a part of it. And God was moving in a mighty way. And revival was brought about in the time of Nehemiah. The question is, is how bad do we want revival? 
I mean, let's be honest. I mean, I've been in churches where I've heard preachers talk about it, preach about it, pray about it, want it, desire it. But then when it comes right down to the brass tacks, they don't, they don't get serious about it. I've heard churches pray about it, seek it, put on different events, praying that something's going to happen. But when it comes right down to it, and when it comes down to the nitty-gritty, they won't dig in deep. Why? Because it is costly. Revival is costly. It is about humbling yourself in such a way that you see yourself as God sees you. Not as you want to see yourself. It is a point where you come to you're willing to confess and repent and get your heart and life right with God. You are pouring out your heart before God and you don't care who hears it because you are more concerned about what God thinks than anybody else thinks. You dig into the word of God and you desire to grow and desire to get more and more and you desire to worship God. You just keep on digging in and you basically say, God, I'm not leaving till you show up. I'm not leaving till you show up. Man, could you imagine if that really happened? Security guys might quit. They might be like, man, we're ready to close up the church right now, and you guys keep going. But revival is costly. A lot of times we'll use all kinds of excuses for revival. Well, we got to get our kids in the bed, and our kids got this test, and we got to study for this, and Oh man, we, we, we just can't, we can't have longer services because we just, we got to get home. There's a game that's getting ready to be on. I recorded something. I want to see it before I go to bed. I got to get up early for work tomorrow. Man, when we get serious with God, we just get to a point where we just don't care about tomorrow because we're focused on what's going on today. And when revival moves, when revival hits, and I'm here to tell you, I believe it will. I believe we're going to see at least one more great revival before Jesus comes back. I believe it. I believe it. But the question is, are we willing to pay the price for it? Are we willing to pay the ultimate price for it? 